Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of Infinitely Prefer a Book. In this episode, I talk with my friend Shannon and her friend and new-to-me friend Ashley about Educated by Tara Westover. Welcome to the podcast, Shannon and Ashley. Thank you. (laughs) Maybe we should identify who's who. I'm Shannon. I'm Ashley. Awesome. (laughs) So Ashley, this is the first time we've met. Maybe you can tell me and the listeners a little bit about yourself and maybe how you and Shannon met. I um, live in Texas, just northwest of Houston, and I do grant writing and development for a nonprofit um, that does therapeutic horseback riding and equine assisted mental health. So it's fantastic. I grew up riding, so I love this. Um, I actually met Shannon at the beginning of my sort of nonprofit career. I worked for the downtown development group in Pensacola, Florida, and she ran a couple of magazines. She was the editor for a couple of magazines um, in Pensacola at the time, one of them, which was the downtown crowd that they um, published for us. And so (laughs) the first time I met her, I was really scared of her because she was just so confident and certain of what she did and didn't want and you know it was just so funny to me because there was these like two older you know very traditional white men one that was British and she was just like no that's not gonna work we can do this this and this and I was like this is so interesting um and so we met then and then we moved our both of us Oh, both of our companies, I guess, moved office space and we ended up sharing a break room. So I got to know her more then. Um, and she invited me to lunch and I didn't know that she was LDS yet. So I was like, this has been a really long day already and I need a drink. And, um, so she got us a table in the back of the restaurant and ordered me a glass of wine and then proceeded to tell me that she didn't drink. And I'm from South Louisiana. So that was a very foreign concept to me. Um, (laughs) Um, and then, uh, we just got to be friends. We just clicked. I, I know she was telling you earlier, we are those friends that, that like that set of friends that has nothing in common, but we're just really great friends. Um, and so we bonded talking about our dogs a lot. We have that in common. And, um, she begged me at the last minute to keep her dog said that she could go on her honeymoon when she was marrying Chip. And I said, sure. Because my roommate at the time backed out two weeks before the wedding saying he couldn't keep the dog for a week. And I was like, my dog was my baby. Yeah, our dogs, both of us, I had a, she had Cubby Wiggles, who was a lab child mix. And I had Van, um, who was a golden. And both of us were at that times in our lives where you're just kind of going through that defining time. And I guess when you're single and going through that defining time, you get a dog and the dog is a person. <laughs> so she was just sitting in the chair wrapped in her blanket because she was always freezing. And she said, I don't know how to tell you this, but I can't go on my honeymoon unless you can keep my dog. And I said, I will definitely keep your dog. And so I, that's a whole other story of picking up Cubby Wiggles. It was hilarious. But um, <laughs> basically I kept Cubby for a week. And when she and Chip got back. her. You did not board Cubby Wiggles. No, you didn't board. Cubby was a person wrapped in a dog's body. (laughs) And um, so now this is a podcast about dogs. And um, (laughs) (laughs) anyway, so I kept Cubby and uh, 
she they came back and picked it up and picked her up and I was like I love your dog and we are best friends now and that was kind of the end of it I mean we could go on and on about the random experiences I've drug her into but well she decided we would be best friends because Chip and I came home early from our honeymoon we were supposed to be there for six nights and seven days and we came home after four nights because we missed our dog that's right Aww. yeah yeah and she said that's it you are my person yeah I was like we're friends and then we just I don't know proceeded to rock and roll through the extent of the careers that we had there and then when I moved to New Orleans and I had my first child who was very, very sick. Um, it turned out to be celiac disease, but she was very ill and I didn't have any family nearby. Ashley lived three hours away and she would drive to New Orleans sometimes to stay with me for the weekend if Chip was gone and help me take care of my very sick baby. She was the bestest best friend ever. Ari was a very sick baby and Shannon let me walk around all day holding her child on the streets of New Orleans. And here we are, and we're all still alive. <laughs> However, I was trying to think earlier, Shannon, how many years, and I don't even know exactly. It was like 2005, I think, when I started working at the DIB. So 14 years, something like that. I don't know. We should celebrate. It's like our... Yes, we need a quinceanera. Yes! <laughs> what a good idea! Oh my god, we could dance and eat lots of Mexican food. So, um, yeah. Yes, and then we also love Willa Cather. She is oh my god. both of our favorite. Oh, authors. she's amazing. Literally, and my dog now's name is My Antonia. Yes. Wow. Someday yeah, we're going to get matching bad. Willa Cather tattoos and go to Red Cloud, Nebraska and spend like a week there. You know, just basking in all things Willa Cather because she is one of the foremost authors that ever yeah. has written. We had a lovely conversation while we were walking down the streets of St. Louis one time about whether or not Willa Cather would even like me and appreciate the fact that I named my dog my Antonia. And we decided she would probably hate me, but I didn't care. <laughs> it doesn't matter. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. That sounds so fun. I love hearing about your guys' friendship and how it's lasted through time. And you guys have um, so many shared memories and distance. Yes. Speaking of distance, Shannon, you and your family have recently relocated to Japan. So I'm excited to learn more about how that is going. What's been like your favorite thing so far? Um, yes, we live about an hour west of Tokyo and we live in a little town called Fusa. We actually live on Yokota Air Base. My husband is a pianist in the Air Force Band program and we're loving Japan. The people are very nice. Um, the language barrier is a little difficult just because reading is an impossibility whereas you know if you go to France or you go to Germany because they use the same alphabet a lot of the words are similar you can sound things out and kind of find your way around a little more here mm -hmm. that's not possible so sometimes that's difficult um, and then my daughter having celiac disease is difficult because celiac disease is very rare here um, but we are finding our way around it and Japanese people are very kind and very helpful. And also, 
the food here is amazing. And I love the Combinis, which are convenience stores and you can go and they have great food and snacks and yeah, it's not, I don't know, maybe it's just because it's a novelty, but I feel like it's better than grab and goes that you get from convenience stores in the States. Hmm. Well, it probably is because all our food is like processed <laughs> and in bags. <laughs> but I've never been to one in Japan, so what do I know? That sounds really awesome. It's kind of like the quick trip of a Japanese convenience store or something, or Bucky's for you, Texas folk. <laughs> Catherine, should we talk a little bit about how you and I bonded and became friends? Yeah, we can do that. Do you want to? <laughs> Do you want to share that story? Sure. I don't know Do you story. edit this later so you can edit things out if you don't like it? Yes, okay. I will edit things out. Okay. Um, yeah, so Catherine and I met at church. When Catherine and I were in the same ward, which is our word for congregation together, we kind of bonded because when we were in a lesson one day in Relief Society, which is like when all the women get together and talk, and they were talking about sort of a controversial topic to me, and some people's opinions weren't driving with my opinions, because that happens. I kind of caught Catherine giving a little like side eye. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, ooh, she thinks like me. And then I uh, just invited myself into her life, and we had really good talks. As Shannon mentioned, she and I both grew up in the same religion, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, sometimes called Mormons, Latter-day Saints, or LDS, as you heard Ashley refer to it earlier. This is the same religion as the author of the book we are discussing today, um, Ms. Tara Westover. While reading the book, um, I really felt like my experience as a Mormon gave me an inside view because I could identify with some of the religious jargon, structures, practices she described. For example, her memoir um, relies heavily on the journals she kept as a child and teenager, and journal writing is specifically encouraged in the Mormon faith culture. I can't tell you how many journals I was gifted in my teens by adults and friends, um, and I filled them all up. I felt I had a better understanding of how her family's religion may have played a role in her upbringing. Um, even though I felt that her religion gave us a sort of connection, her experience is not representative of most LDS families. Um, and she mentions that in the foreword of her book, and it was certainly not representative of my own experience and my own family. So um, kind of fun. We're going to be able to offer a variety of perspectives um, we have Ashley, who has a non-LDS perspective, um, a never-LDS perspective, I should say, and to Shannon, who has um, more mainstream or traditional LDS views, um, while, as she said, we do share some maybe uh, differences on the controversial ones, um, and then myself, who is now less devout than I was as a, as a teenager and a young, young adult. Um, so now on to our book discussion. In her personal memoir, Educated, Tara Westover shares her experience growing up in rural Idaho in a family ruled by her father's fear and distrust of institutions, including the government, the school system, and Western medicine. Her family lived in poverty and did not provide any formal education for their children. She suffered abuse and neglect and was eventually able to get out from her situation by teaching herself how to study for the ACT and apply for college. This memoir is a story of her coming into her own self, or as she calls it, her education. Spoilers ahead as always. 
A short note before we get started, though, in the book, Tara comes across the definition of bipolar disorder in a college class and feels like it applies to her dad to describe some of his erratic behavior, including delusions of grandeur. After editing our discussion, I felt like I needed to provide some clarity on the link between mental health and violence. Um, it gets a lot of press in the media about people who are violent um, must have must have some underlying mental health issue. But it's worth noting, first of all, that mental health Mental illness itself um, encompasses a lot of diagnoses with an array of symptoms um, and shouldn't be conflated with psychoses, which is um, just one symptom present in some mental illnesses. And it's really, mental illness is really, really common. One in five people will have a mental illness diagnosis in their lifetime. I'll post a link to this data from the CDC and Harvard um, in the show notes, but Research shows that people with mental illnesses are more likely to be a victim of violence than the general population. And while some um, mental illnesses may have slightly elevated in instances of violence, most of that difference goes away when you take into account genetic, social, and environmental factors. So um, there's really not much of a difference between the general population and, and most mental health uh, mental illnesses. When substance abuse is paired with mental illness, that becomes a different story. And that's a, there's a much higher rate of violence with that dual diagnosis. However, even that higher rate is nowhere near the majority of people affected by a dual diagnosis of mental illness and substance abuse disorder. While mental health issues certainly played a role in the dynamic of this family and may have led to much of the erratic behavior that put Tara's family in harm's way, um, it is my personal opinion that the other fact that other factors, including their poverty, childhood trauma, repeated brain injuries, access to, to health care, including mental health care, as well as a patriarchal family structure that concentrated power in the father and older males played a large role in the perpetuation of abuse. Shannon, you said that Ashley was the one who actually kind of turned you onto this book. So how did that happen? Yes. So I am super busy and I don't really have a lot of time to read anymore, so I only read books that my friend that my friend Rachel, who is another reading buddy of mine, or Ashley tell me I should read. And then I just like cut out all the crap. I don't read any bad books. <laughs> Everything I read is really good and worth my time. And she told me, you have to read this book. And in fact, she said, you have to read it so much that I just bought you a copy and shipped it to you because she knows that I'm cheap and I would just wait for it to come out in the library. And she said, no, I need to talk to you about it now. I'm I also wasn't, I wasn't finished with mine yet, but I knew that she, I needed her to read it. And she reads, I read fairly fast, but she reads far faster than I do. So I knew that we would be done at the same time, even though I was only like a third of the way through. So I was just like, it'll be at your house on Tuesday. Please read it immediately. <laughs> That's a great recommendation. Shannon, what were your general impressions of the book after reading it? One thing that I really love about Westover's writing that I think is very similar to Willa Cather is that she attacked really profound concepts and ideas with simple language. And I love that. I think that's the mark of a very skilled writer. And this is just an amazingly intimate and, you know, she just spares no one. And it's a real look into mental illness in families and how that affects families and how religion affects mental illness and vice versa and, and education. And also, man, I was just blown away by her representation of her abusive relationship with her brother, who she calls Sean, even though that's not his real name, because that was 
so real how much she loved him and how he could be so tender and loving and how difficult it was to tear herself away because of the tender love sometimes. Yeah, that's so real though. Like that's such a real thing when you have someone in your family that has mental illness, you know, because, and I mean, my mom is nothing like this family, you know, at all, but you know, as far as the way that hers kind of is carried out, but I mean, yeah, you just don't know which side and you just adore this person. And in my case, you know, it's one of the best people I know, but then on the other hand, when they're in that mode that having an episode, whatever, you you know, you kind of want to call it because she's not officially diagnosed anything. Yeah, you just... It's, it's it's like two people. It's like two different people in the same body. And then you even have, for me, the most interesting character in this book. And I, it's it's weird to call her a character. Is she a character because she's a real person? But she's someone's representation of herself. So I don't know. But the mother is just the most interesting. We'll just say character character in this book because she seems aware of the abuse coming from the father and the brother, and she puts forth a little bit of push against it. But she always folds and just lets it continue. And sometimes she's dishing out her own abuse, like when she told, let's call her Tara, because if we say Westover, you know, all of their last names is Westover. Um, When she (laughs) told Tara she had to move out at 16 because she had Mm -hmm. forgotten that she thought she was 20. Yeah. Wow. Stunning. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack with the mom. Yeah. I just think about her power is derived from propping up the men in her life because the men have all the power. And so for her to get any of the power, she has to prop them up. But even still, just like the fact that not keeping track of birthdays and how old your children are definitely seems pathological so shannon says she's the most interesting you know person in the book i like to me she's the one not that i that i recognize that's a good word she's the one that i recognize the most from my own life just like her ability to just choose to believe something and go with it infallibly and never miss a beat you know like this is normal and I always wanted to be a midwife and I'm going to cure people within her like the little inkling that she gave you know when she admitted the abuse from the father and the brother and then her just 180 and like almost it's just like even though there's proof there in front of her here's the word you wrote you know just the ability to completely deny it I mean I recognize that person so much Mm -hmm. like she was very real to me I guess you know is what I could say that's so interesting because I just don't understand her she is the one that I don't understand the most I even understand the father and Sean but I don't understand this this yeah I don't know that I understand her but I I recognize her <laughs> I guess you know from my own okay. life I mean yeah. my I mean and again it's compare it's honestly comparing apples to oranges but I mean like my mom's ability to believe something wholeheartedly that is 100% untrue is just remarkable sometimes <laughs> and mm-hmm. so I think that's why I just identified with her recognize that and to me her role through the book was not normal but like I could I could understand it I could you relate to it you know just because you know, I think I've seen it on some level so many times in my own life. If you guys could talk to any of the people in this book, who would you talk to? Hmm. I mean, I would talk to Tara. I mean, that's the obvious answer, but mm-hmm. honestly, I really would. Or maybe, um, I don't know, it would be an interesting, what was his name? And I didn't write it down. Was that, was that first professor she had when she went uh, overseas? 
and she was like you know talking to someone and must have been like talking to an alien you know he would be interesting but um no because I mean for me I've argued with these other people before and tried to get them to see differently Mm -hmm. or do differently and I mean it's just it's not worth it (laughs) so I think I would just go with Sarah yeah I agree I think the other people are just um they're so ingrained in their ways they've just seen over and over again you can see that those patterns happening it's really tough to break that cycle I mean the fact that Tara broke it and her brother Tyler as well um is pretty heroic and notable it's not normal and the other brother what's the other brother's name the one with the r the one that also went right richard but you know i the only reason they were able to break it at least in her and richard's case maybe in tyler maybe it was just pure grit but in her and richard's case they were just and and i'm going to use a a mormon word here they were blessed with way above average intelligence Right? Who gets no schooling until they're 16, does it themselves, mm-hmm. and gets into BYU and then gets a doctorate degree overseas? I mean, I these people are, are like superhuman. I don't, I don't understand it at all. And it's funny that the father took credit for their, for their. Yeah, of know, course. He said like it just goes to show our quote unquote school is better. It's like no, <laughs> it's not. It's because they have some weird superhuman intelligence. Well, or I mean, I don't know, an incredible survival instinct and. and you know just strive to thrive and that's what you do to really break free yeah and I mean there and there are other people in the world with extreme levels of grit and they still wouldn't be able to do this because yeah that's who true. can teach themselves trigonometry I don't know trigonometry and I have my education <laughs> so I don't know <laughs> yeah and I think we've talked a little bit about Mormonism how it plays a role in this story and I think the idea that she the, the fact that she went to BYU is a big part because I think it was that bridge between her family's um beliefs and then this in the real world it sort of was kind of like a lot I think her father um would have put up a bigger fight had you been trying to go somewhere like University of Idaho or something but because it was a church-related school I think there was some leeway given there mm-hmm. um from her family's perspective and then maybe even her church leaders advocating for her it doesn't say that they did but I wonder I uh, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's interesting because I was when I was reading through y'all's notes, and and clearly both of you could probably speak better to this than I can. And Shannon can tell you that I just have this weird desire to defend, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, just because not on doctrine or beliefs or anything, but just because I hate, you know, the <laughs> I hate the way that the rest of the world sees it when it's really just another faith. And I'm only like that because Shannon's one of my best friends. So you know, but um, I mean. For For me, they are Mormon. She was raised in the Mormon church. And I understand that most likely some of the structures of at least their local church, um, if not the faith, allowed for some of this. But it's, it's just not a story of the Mormon faith to me at all. I think it's far more of a story of religious structure in general. And I mean, the history of all religions of turning our eyes away and sweeping things under the rug and ignoring what's happening. And I feel like the box that we use to put faith in and call it religion is, you know, I mean, it allows people with pretty severe mental illnesses to take things pretty far because it's under this, you know, banner of religion and faith. Clearly the book is about a Mormon family, but for me, that's just not, I don't feel like this happened because they were Mormon I guess is my point right the fanaticism would have happened no matter what religion they practiced because of their father's mental illness yes and there's fanaticism in you know every religion but I don't suppose I need to get on my 
<laughs> soapbox <laughs> about Mormons not being weirdos with you two. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. You're welcome. It's a weird <laughs> quirk. Me and yet you're willing to call me not a weirdo. <laughs> it's a super weird quirk that I have over, that I've developed over the years. But anyway. Well, no, Ashley once said to me, she said, it cannot be a bad religion if you came out of it talking to me. <laughs> I thought that was really beautiful. That's sweet. I'll take well, it. Well, yeah. yeah, and one of the most intelligent, open-minded people that I know, and that's not, that doesn't at all fit into the stereotype of the church. I think it's true that there's a broad spectrum on, in every religion, and so I think this is one um, aspect of Mormonism at, at one end of the spectrum, and I think it's not extremely rare, um, but I don't think it's necessarily extremely rare in, in, in the world. I think there's people like this to certain degrees all over the place. Um, and definitely Mormonism isn't immune to that. I think that the, as far as the people who want to live off-grid, um, be preppers and homeschool, there are people like that. But I think most of those people actually homeschool and don't continually put their family in physical harm's way because they believe angels will save them from everything. I think that that is rare. I grew up among the Amish community and, you know, they, so, you know, no, I don't think living off grid and having, you know, being very orthodox, practicing your religion in a very orthodox manner is rare, but the way that the father robbed them of any education and put them in physical danger all the time, that's rare. I hope it's, I hope it's as rare as we hope it is. (laughs) Um, I have heard some people's stories where they just trust so much that Jesus Christ will come again in their lifetime that they don't need to put a lot of effort into their education or into their vocation and things really i have not heard that where like do you hear these stories you (laughs) you went to college in idaho didn't you I did go to college in Idaho, yeah. So is it from those people? Is this a unique community in the North? I don't know. So I have listened to a lot of podcasts from folks who were raised Mormon and maybe kind of have different perspectives now. Um, And they talk about kind of like one family specifically was really resented the fact that they were homeschooled and very isolated because they were homeschooled. I did grow up with my best friend in my congregation. She was in a family that was a lot like this in an urban setting. I didn't realize it. And kind of at the time, I just thought her dad was really strict and kind of mercurial, but I didn't really understand the level of abuse until I was reading this book and I just all the things that she had said over the time of of just knowing her it came back to me and I was like oh my gosh like this is her family you know she would we would get like snacks that were prepackaged at church sometimes and she would just not eat them and keep them for when she gets locked up in her room (laughs) occasionally and she would like read tons and tons of books now they were literate they live really close to the library and so she would read so she wasn't uneducated but she would be sent to her room for over 24 hours at a time just different things they wouldn't are allowed to drink milk one time they, they thought something was wrong with the cow's milk they her dad said anyone who wears black is evil um, and can't be trusted just like lots of different things and she was the oldest in her family and she was kind of you know putting uh perpetuating that abuse to some of her younger siblings I feel like I would kind of try to tease and joke and like hey don't be so mean to your sister but now that I think about it I wonder what was really happening in that family are you still close with her 
I am not. That relationship with their family and our family became so toxic that we actually had to cut them off or yeah, because they, some things happened and they just, they refused to acknowledge that they happened. They completely denied some things that were, that happened. And so we're like, well, we're not going to be friends anymore, I guess. So I haven't really talked to her in like 15 years. So it's sad. Wow. I'm, uh, have you tried to get in touch with her since reading this book and just kind of see if she was able to land on her feet? I haven't. I've thought about it. I definitely don't want to invite her whole family into my life. So I don't know. Like last I kind of stalked them, their kids are all like close with their parents. So I wouldn't want to invite the whole thing Mm. on my head, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if she were not connected to them, I would be interested in talking to her and getting to know her more. And again, I wonder if they're all close with their parents because their parents like Tar. Are we calling her Tara or Tara? What is it? I don't know. Uh, I call her Tara, but that's just... I say, I say Tara. Tara. Yeah. Tara? Okay. Okay. Well, uh, Ms. Westover, we hope it's Tara and not Tara. Yeah. We're going to go with Tara. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I guess we should have looked that up. But I feel like her parents were successfully able to sort of disable three of their children so that they would mm-hmm. have no choice but to be close to their parents. And I wonder if your friend's parents did the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I think they created this culture of we're better than everybody, this us versus them. Which is just like what the Just elitism did. that they kind of had. Yeah, like no one else was as modest as them. Everybody, yep. you know, people were, were Gentiles for not being so, de- you know, as devout as they were. Yeah, well, yeah. And the, that level of, I mean, even though they technically weren't, I mean, she went into town and stuff, but I mean, taking away education is almost taking away the ability to earn money and have money. And then because of how things worked out, her parents ended up being fairly wealthy. It's kind of taking away the kid's ability to thrive and grow and do anything and forcing dependence back on the family. I mean, kind of like a cult. They're completely financially beholden to their parents in order to feed their own children. Uh, it's almost like a forced dependence you know I mean there is no breaking away with that Mm -hmm. level of control and not only financial dependence but also just dependence on love and acceptance basically in order for her to be part of the family she has to renounce everything that she has said and experienced I also think it's interesting to note how much information you can glean about the level of abuse in the family and the level of control just from her language the way that she says things like at the beginning of the book she calmly says something about one time when they were younger and Sean put Tyler's head through a TV and then she just moves right on mm-hmm. yeah I mean normal. you that is can you imagine putting someone's head through a television like, so yeah those old glass exactly ones. Oh exactly gosh. he's lucky he didn't die and she said that so simply and then just moved right on because mm-hmm. that was so normalized to her that can we just take a violence. moment and recognize that the statement he's lucky to be alive applies to everyone in this book in such a literal way how are these people alive i mean it's almost like their ridiculous level of luck completely perpetuates the the lies that the father is telling seriously how are they alive well i think if they heard this podcast and they heard you ask that they would say well it's because we're the angels angels." yes yes absolutely that's that's what i mean but i mean really how did these people live through this I just, I don't understand it at all. The father is now handicapped and disfigured. Several of Mm -hmm. them are are missing limbs. The mother has traumatic brain injury. I know. 
They're alive, but what is their quality of life? It's true. This is true. What about Tara's journals that she kept growing up? She says that sometimes she recorded the events as she felt them, but they were presented less, less traumatic than they really were, or she used vague, shadowy language. How do the journals inform the book? Well, she says herself that there wouldn't be a book without the journals, right? Am I imagining mm-hmm. that? Didn't she say that? Yeah, I think she did. And when her father asked for proof, she said she had her journal again. So I think it's the same way that memories are imperfect. They are. And there, uh, you know, there are psychologists who have studied this. We filter and adapt memories to be the way that we want them to be. We can, without knowing, we do that. So having these journals and recognizing that they were written the way they were written because of the mindset she was in at that time, you could probably filter the truth out of them. But I doubt that just as they were on the page, I doubt they really reflected the truth. You'd have to think to yourself, okay, I wrote that Sean put Tyler's head through the TV as if it was no big deal. When in fact, I should have been horrified, but I wasn't because I had been desensitized to abuse and injury and violence yeah well and I think too the way she talks about the language of her journal she because she says and even in the in the end notes she'll say that like she adds footnotes in the book because Richard and like her brothers don't remember the events the, the same way mm-hmm. as she recorded them in her journal these people were going through some pretty significant trauma and I mean there's there's all kinds of research and things now and you know I mean we were talking about trauma-informed care today and there's just so much evidence out there that trauma really kind of twists and changes the way that you see the things in your life happening and so I guess to me what that leads me to is just she was seen for her and her journal entries or her her record of it of what she saw but you know like Richard's version was different and her father's version was different and Sean's version was different and all of these people are so traumatized that they're just they're seeing the same thing in whatever way they can process it you know if that makes sense in her view she helped him and drug him and stuff because that maybe that's what she needed and I do respect that she talks about how her memories are different from Richard's and Luke's yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. that is good journalism as much as you can apply that to memoirs I also just as a journaler to have to wonder if her ability to survive this and come out the other side in the way that she did is somehow attributed to and tied to to that journaling because it is such a strong coping mechanism and even though she didn't know that that's what she was doing I just wonder if all of that writing that she did kind of instinctively helped to pull her through that. It was her therapy. And I think that also, you know, they say to be a writer, you should start writing. I think that years of journaling made her a better writer in the future. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, yeah, that's probably true. And it was also like her only form of formalized education in a way, right? So the idea that she's reading and writing and processing things and using her brain in ways that she doesn't have other opportunities to do so because she's not going to school. Yeah, I mean, it clearly developed the reading, writing side and portion of her brain. And that's kind of all she had aside from physical work. At times she wrote that she felt that her life was narrated for her by others. She says their voices were for 
forceful, emphatic, absolute. It had never occurred to me that my voice might be as strong as theirs. What did you think about that? I I really got that. I identified with that 100% because I think until I was really in my mid to late 20s. And Shannon, you knew me and we've talked a lot about both of our you know childhood and growing up and stuff but I mean for me as someone who you know was a a southern girl being raised in a southern family it's odd because my dad very much he clearly won out in the end but he very much pushed both of my sisters and I to be incredibly independent and and everything but I mean I think you know both sets of grandparents and you know like the southern culture very much defined you and I really identified with that because I grew up hearing this is how you act and this is what you do and this is how you dress and this is how ladies behave you know and that kind of stuff so I was obviously very different in hers but yeah I mean I think having your life narrated by other people is kind of a common common thing yeah it's the I think that's the absolute norm that's you're a child I guess I'm the only one of the three of us currently raising children of our own, um, although Ashley's boyfriend has a daughter that she spends a lot of time with. Yeah, I'm not raising um, her though, it's good. <laughs> okay. I read this and thought, this is normal. Like as a parent, it's kind of your job to do that for your kid until they're yeah, ready to do it sure. on their own. And you just do it in the best way that you know how, the way that you figured was you know as you lived through your life experiences you figured out this is the best way so you teach it to them and like my daughter is 10 and so she's just starting to narrate her own life and I have to let her go and do that and try different ways and learn from her mistakes and I think the difference between me and the Westover parents is that they didn't want to let Tara or her brothers or sister go and make mistakes and find their own way. And I guess I can understand that. It's very hard, especially when you see your child doing something that you think, I oh, feel like letting your God. kids find their own way and make their mistakes and come back from them is kind of a new parenting thing. I mean, I... I feel like maybe, again, while her case is obviously extreme, that might be one of her more normal experiences, you know, in her family is people, you know, kind of telling you your story and dictating the, the do's and don'ts and yeses and no's to you. Well, do you think that their their instinct to kind of control her narrative was because she was trying to tell the truth about abu- the abuse that she received? Later in life, um, at the beginning of, uh, so at the beginning of the book, um, she writes, I didn't believe Tyler would really go to college, that he would ever abandon the mountain to join the Illuminati. Okay, so just think about that. <laughs> That's how her brain worked at that time. Yeah. There was no, I didn't think he would go to BYU. It was, she literally says to join the Illuminati. Her way of thinking was so shaped by her father because she was never around anybody else either Mm -hmm. so she had very little opportunities to learn about different ways of thinking and being and seeing the world and I think it just happened a lot later in life for her so she has more awareness of it happening and I think she had to get over some really strong narratives that were just obviously patently false oh yes like Like the Illuminati 
when she goes to her her wonderful roommate Robin, who someone give this woman a medal. She <laughs> saved Tara Westover. She made her go to the bishop because she needed money for tuition and to get her tooth fixed. And so she, I think my favorite scene in the book is when she meets with that bishop for the first time. And what is she like, 16 or 17? And he's trying to get her to take a grant and she won't take government money because it's from the evil government. And he literally pulls out his own checkbook and is going to write her a $1,400 check. And she says that he looks heavenward for a moment. And I just really put myself in that bishop's shoes thinking, (laughs) can you imagine having this kid in front of you and just like trying to be respectful about her family and her personal journey, but thinking to yourself, Holy hell, what is happening? (laughs) She had so much to overcome. She's like 16 or 17 and still... Mm -hmm. She did, but do you not... Not that that bishop was clearly, you know, pretty remarkable guy, and and I don't mean to blame him, but do you not wonder why he didn't look into her family? I mean, I would have instantly assumed something's going on in this family. She probably has younger siblings. Who are these people? What can you do? What could he have done? I I guess he couldn't prove abuse. I don't know. Right. I, I have a friend, um, and I hope if she hears this, she'll forgive me, but I'm not saying your name, so it's okay. I have a friend who whose mother came home with a baby one day. They didn't even know she was pregnant. She and her, she had two sisters, and she just came home with a new baby, and she had been really spiraling into mental illness. And this baby was neglected. The baby would be sat in front of the TV with a bottle of Dr. Pepper. She, her teeth were rotting out of her head when she was not quite two. And, um, you know, we tried and social services did nothing. There's nothing you can do unless the person is old enough to really fight for themselves and they want to take their family to court and they have evidence. I'm, I just don't think there's anything he could do and he was probably smart enough to know that and just to hope that... And then it might make it worse. The, yeah. Well, very well. Yeah, very well could have. Yeah, I mean, we had a situation in the clinic in my last job where we would, you know, the kid was 15 and so on. we just found a way to get a broken arm fixed, you know, um, and, and jump through some hoops and, and kind of really go about it in a roundabout way and we're able to get it done. And it was, you know, we were discussing, you know, did we report this? Do we not? It's clearly abuse. And honestly, you know, we're like, okay, well, he's 15. He has two more years. He survived this long. It's better for him, even in this situation, to stay where he is than to go into the foster care system. So, you know, right. I mean, there is always that to consider. And there are just so many thousands of children in foster care. And a lot of times, I mean, there are wonderful foster foster families, but there are also foster families who also abuse. And so, you know, I don't know. I don't really blame him. No, I don't really blame him. I just, you know, I think it's interesting. And uh, like, who knows, maybe the grandparents did try, you know, but it's just, there's so many people in this book that could have intervened. When that happened, when the grandmother tried to take her to Arizona and enroll her in school, that's when I first realized that the father was deeply ill. Because yeah. I don't think the grandma would have tried to do that unless she knew. But again, what could she do? It was like, mm-hmm. how do you save a child from that? Because it looks, you know, it looks so normal unless you have a book like this is digging into the intricacies and the, the even sadder thing is that it seems like Tara's father 
really truly loves her and wants to keep her his version of safe right Mm -hmm. yeah he really believes that this is what is best for her and he loves her so much and wants to keep her safe but his love is the thing that is toxic for her i don't know i think it's about control but maybe you're Mm -hmm. maybe you're being more generous than i am in this case but and, and it's probably both honestly it's it's probably both but to me like his sadness at her leaving for school and her his you know efforts and his visit to her to turn her ways around and and things like that like all of that just screams control to me how how crazy must that control be if Audrey just totally backstabbed her sister like that. I know. Yeah, I know. I mean, what did he say? What did he do? Like, what happened there? What did he threaten her with? That's got to be fear. To bring that. It, oh, it's definitely fear. She finally had someone fear. on her side who had been through it and believed her, and they were going to fight together, and boy, she just threw Tara right under the bus. And I mean, the man clearly suffered, you know, suffered significantly from some diet undiagnosed mental illness and and you know god love him for what must be going on in his head and i i always try to remember that when i'm dealing with people that i know have a mental illness that are hurting me or frustrating me or whatever you know i try to remember that it just looks so different from their perspective and it's wrong but it's real to them so i'm trying to keep that in mind with him but it's just he is on such a power trip too i mean there is just Mm. it's so much about control and dominance with him and later when he's disfigured and the the women who work in his little like factory all kind of revere him for his visions and he's just like soaking it up you think oh wow this is interesting i mean it's just an egotistical chauvinistic power trip to me too as much as i try to bring myself back to it i mean it's just that's the first way i see him through the whole book i also think it's a slow burning mental illness yeah Um, My very good friend, uh, one of her parents has, oh gosh, I wish I could remember the name of it. It's a disillusion, uh, I don't know, but she has a mental illness, but it took like 20 to 30 years to finally realize what was happening. Um, Let's see, how old are we? Yeah, so I'm going to say it took 20 years of just slowly going downhill to get a diagnosis and realize what was going on. And um, there's no cure. We just know so little about mental illness and how to deal with it as a society and then how to help people who have different types of mental illnesses medically. I feel like we're just so behind on that. We are. And I mean, as much as I say that, and I mean it, that is, you know, definitely, definitely how I feel about him first and foremost. I have some level of sympathy for him because he is ill. He does have an illness and a mental illness is a real thing. Um, you know, it certainly shouldn't justify or allow for any of this but this is why I feel a yeah. lot more anger and blame on the mother than I do on the father he's obviously ill and this mother could have she could have gone to her parents for help like they were obviously there for her her bro- her brothers and sisters wanted to help her they saw what was going on and she chose not to do we think 
that that's a mental illness as well because it doesn't seem like it. I do think we're a little, um, I think sometimes we use the word mental illness really liberally. And I feel like even with her dad, um, he, he did have mental illness, I do think. And I think, but, but I don't think his mental illness explained all the things that he did at the same time. And I think her mom really bought into the idea that he was the spiritual leader too. So, I mean, is that a mental illness to think that someone's a spiritual leader? I mean, you could argue that. I don't know that that's the case. But she is doing what she religiously feels like is appropriate. Well, and I think the reason that we are using the word mental illness with Mr. Westover is that Tara herself took these classes in college. And when they started talking about people who are bipolar, she she thinks that her father has this particular mental illness. But not everybody who's bipolar is also abusive. Correct. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, he's... And maybe that's why I have that, you know, have that reaction to him. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I I just... There's so much going on there. I mean, the mom is... I don't know, what do you call it? Morbidly fascinating when something is, like, to me. Just because it's fascinating how she just segues into that and accepts it. But, I mean, honestly, look at it. Like, she became the only midwife in a rural area... And then kind of one thing leading to another was a, you know, natural healer, quote unquote. And I mean, that gave her some level of power Mm -hmm. and clout and authority, something she'd never had before. And so, you know, I mean, on some level, maybe this is more about power and self-image even, you know, and what that can do to us as much as, as a mental illness. I don't know. What do you think about sort of the at the end where she says she is a changed person from the person she was as her father's daughter and from her 16-year-old self? You could call this selfhood many things, she writes. Transformation, metamorphosis, falsity, betrayal. I call it an education. I don't know, Shannon. You talk about it. I don't have the right words. <laughs> that just is so incredible to me. I mean, blows me away isn't even the right words. I just, I think that's so fantastic. Like that line... <laughs> changed the way I tried to read and see things and and educate myself honestly it just it really did yeah like it inspired you to be more educated and read more outside your box maybe travel outside your box yeah it did I mean and I I think I had that tendency anyway you know because I like reading things that do that but um it definitely gave me a new perspective on it as education you know and I love um I watched some interviews with her and read some interviews with her and I have really grasped onto the idea of you're responsible for your own education um and I just I love that I think it's really sad that she has to acknowledge that some people call this selfhood that she's come into betrayal Mm. you know because that is what her parents think Mm -hmm. of it as probably i mean part of me feels weird like sitting here on my high horse talking about these people who absolutely yeah i agree i only know them through a book and i haven't experienced their culture you know what i mean but that aside (laughs) it's sad that she has to acknowledge that and I think as as far as an, an education, again, I think it's something that we all go through. And hers is just exemplary because of how far she came, how late in life, and the things that she dealt with. But she acquired an education not only from the universities, and obviously she is a scholar now, but she required an education from her parents, from the abuse, from Charles and Robin and her bishop and her grandma in town, all 
all of the people that taught her something along the way and then all of her travels later i think she barely touches on that but personally for me i know that I've lived in a lot of different places and that has I have gained an enormous education from just being around people and being, you know, having one of my feet in different communities. Um, I've lived down south, I've lived in the Midwest, I've lived in the Mid-Atlantic, I've lived in the Northeast, I've traveled to Europe, and I've traveled to Asia, and that is also an education. So I like to think that when she says education, she doesn't just mean it in the traditional book sense, although that is an enormous part of it. I mean... No, I think it means experiences and stuff too. Mm -hmm. And I mean, so until I read the last line of the book, I thought my favorite line in the book was like five paragraphs up where she says, I am not... Not the child my father raised but he is the father who raised me and it's like she was able to grow and change and take her experiences and move forward whereas he was stuck you know I mean he was still the father that raised that little 16 year old girl in the mirror that she looks at but she had grown and changed and the experiences that she had by putting herself out of that one single life on the mountain you know it was like she grew and he didn't you know and we as he humans are always supposed to be growing and so and he didn't totally educate as a 40 year old i'm gonna be 40 next year i hope I'm so learning i hope i'm learning and changing all i better time. be yeah yeah what is the i'm gonna butcher this in so many ways but there's some there's a chinese proverb that says you know if you're not still growing then you're dead right mm. so but i mean one could argue that he did grow he got more fanatical he got darker <laughs> He got, you know, more obsessive. He started having visions. He did grow, just not in the direction. That's true. One That's would. True. I can go along with that. Hoped like Tara widened her worldview, and she sort of, in my opinion, became more enlightened, learning about the truth of the Holocaust and the civil rights movement. What do you guys think you learned about? family forgiveness and trauma um what did I learn from this um I I think that I mean for me her ability to keep an open heart towards her parents and and her brother and to love um that's pretty that's big that was pretty impactful I think for me as far as forgiveness I think that you know I could probably learn to take something away from that um it worries me for her a little bit too but I don't think she's in a place where she's going to put herself back in the line of abuse about them but you know I mean with them um but yeah I mean her her ability to hold on to her love for the mountain where she grew up and the people in her community and her family is really remarkable. I mean, I could I could study on that for a while, I think, and pull out some, some good things. Well, everybody needs home. You know, I, th I, th I think that for humans to be truly healthy, they need family and home. But that means different things to different people. You have children, you know, LGBTQ kids who are kicked out of their homes and then they make their own family. But we all need family. And that's when when she lost part of her family, she, she just went and made one you know mm -hmm. <laughs> remarkable yeah I mean I do that I look at my friendship with Shannon who is, who is friends like this you know <laughs> and I live you know I mean I live in Texas because my other best friend lives here you know and I mean yeah I think you sometimes kind of create your own your own family I guess 
but I mean, I think for me looking at her and again, I mean, I talked to my mom for 30 minutes on the phone today. We're not estranged, nothing, but you know, I think I could learn from that a little bit towards not loving, not always loving to go home, not it always being a priority for me, that kind of thing. I mean, I think her ability to take the good and appreciate the good. I've always been good at that and I'm in a phase where I think I'm not and I, I think I could really take something from that. Yeah, so I think this one particular quote in the book not only epitomizes forgiveness and family and trauma, you know, what Tara learned from going through them. Uh, and also it really shines a light on what I said earlier about how she can take really profound concepts and present them in with simple language. So uh, she said, I shed my guilt when I accepted my decision on its own terms without endlessly prosecuting old grievances, without weighing his sins against mine, without thinking of my father at all. I learned to accept my decision for my own sake, because of me, not because of him, because I needed it, not because he deserved it. It was the only way I could love him. So she, her decision to cut herself off from her father was because she needed it, not because he deserved to be exiled from her life. And in that way, she was able to continue to love him. I think that very well captures the complexity of how humans can order things in their mind to make it, make difficult situations okay. And family and trauma and forgiveness yeah. are difficult situations. And yeah. Well, and the complexity of just loving somebody and being in a relationship, you know, this, you know, this story, you know, I'm, I'm like a broken record, but it pushes it to the extreme, but it can show us things and teach us things that are on so much of a smaller level in our own lives. I mean, the need to love and the desire to love, you know, and for people that you want in your life, but maybe aren't good in your life. For me, it personifies a lot of things that are on a, a very small level in my world. Because I did not live in a survivalist family because Shannon can tell you, I do not camp. <laughs> <laughs> so there was none of that happening. Yeah. My mama's idea of, things. yeah. My mama's idea of camping is a cabin in the woods with a hot tub, hot and cold, running water, and a kitchen. And that is my idea of camping, and I will love her until the day I die for her teaching me that that is how you camp. <laughs> what about you, Catherine? What did you learn about family and forgiveness and trauma? It just kind of reiterated some of the things that I had heard before. I think for her, she, ha she has to grapple with the idea, holding two things at once, that she loves these people and they hurt her immeasurably and need to be removed from her life. I think there's kind of like an Oprah forgiveness where you try to let go of people who have hurt you and try not to associate with them, but then tr still try to hold on to that kind of maybe that love that you had from at one time. I definitely don't think that she is absolving them of their sins or whatever, of their misdeeds, which, would, which might be one way of defining forgiveness. But I think it's just something that she's still grappling with the idea of her immense love for her father and Sean and all of her family, but then still holding true to her voice of saying, this happened to me, this was wrong, and I have to separate myself from it. It's definitely a lot of strength of character for her, I think. I don't know how she came about that, but she sure did. Hmm. Well, you know, one could argue that she came about her strength from going through what yeah, what, what her father forced upon her to go through. And I mean, I think she notes a couple of times, it might not be in the book, it might have been in, in stories and things that I read, but 
you know, people asked her, you know, do you wish it was different? Would you change it? And I mean, while she says, I mean, on some level, yes, you know, all of that was bad. You know, at the same time, it is who she is. That is who has made her who she is. And I mean, I think, you know, again, it's true for all of us on some level, you know, I mean, there's things I know in my life that I would say, yes, I would get rid of that. I will give back whatever great person I have become because of it. But I mean, at the end of the day, would you, I mean, would you really give away a part of yourself of who you are to change your past? I don't know. I'm not really sure. One of the questions that you skipped over was my favorite one. Can we talk about that one? Yes. You asked, does it seem to you that she must lose one life to gain another? And I thought that was a really interesting question because it really is difficult to be so different from your family. Even if her father hadn't have had all these problems and Sean wasn't abusive and they had just been this fairly uneducated prepper family like living out in the wilderness and she went and became this incredibly successful scholar even if she decided to stay in the church, it still would have been very difficult, I think, because she would be so, so incredibly different from her family. She just have such a different worldview. I've read a really interesting um, psychological study, just some pop science on poverty, not that her family's in poverty, but how a lot of kids have trouble getting out of poverty because that means sort of leaving their parents behind and becoming very, very different from them. I think it's a really good question because I can see how she would be put in a position to, yeah, to have to lose a life to gain another. She basically says that's kind of what happens when Sean had killed Diego and she went to the bathroom and her father was in the living room, unbeknownst to her, dialing Sean. And she said she... That was like her turning point. Yeah, she reached for the old her and it wasn't there anymore. It's... I don't know, because I, I initially like wrote, you know, no, I'm not sure that's true, because can you ever really lose a piece of yourself, a piece of your history that you've lived through? But then at the same time, I mean, when you're not speaking to your family, when you aren't communicating with your family, when you don't see them, when you, you know, I mean, yeah, you really have kind of lost them. You know, I think it's, yeah. I mean, it was think, enough to give her, a, she had a mental breakdown that was so painful. Yeah. I, herself from them. I mean, I think it's back to what you were just saying, Catherine, where sometimes you have to make that hard decision, you know, between loving somebody and is it really that harmful for you? And, you know, this a harmful situation for you to stay in. And she hasn't cut them out of her life personally, but they they kind of have cut her out of it, I guess, because of her decision. So, yeah, I mean, I think she did kind of have to lose that life. You know, it's interesting because they do say, take the blessing, and then when she doesn't, they're like, okay, we're out. But she also writes that she says, would justify my decision to cut him from my life. So she does say that she she chose to cut him from her life. I think in a way, you know, just taking the idea at face value, losing one life to gain another. I think that's true for a lot of little things. Like if I want to be a physically fit person, I can't also be the person who loves to not exercise and eat ice cream at midnight. So I think you have to choose the path that you want to be on to gain that life. And sometimes your former life can kind of fit in along it 
But in this case, she wanted her life to be so different that she had to completely cut everyone off in order for it to happen. Now's the part of the show where we give recommendations to our listeners about what is making us happy lately. So Shannon, when you start us off, what would you recommend for our listeners? Well, <clears throat> the next book I am going to read is Pachinko because Rachel said I had to read it. So I'm just waiting for it to come open at the library and I'm going to read that. But apparently it's amazing and everyone should read it. <laughs> Um, I think uh, I'm really getting into trying to make less waste, especially less plastic waste. So I tried this new toothpaste, their toothpaste tablet. The first time you order it, it comes in a little glass jar, and the next time you just get compostable refill packets and they are literally like little chewable pills and you put it in your mouth and you bite down on it about twice and then you just start brushing with a wet toothbrush and it just turns into like a creamy foamy toothpaste in your mouth and then there's no tube that's cool you're supposed to be amazed by this I have never heard of that I can't see my face (laughs) no one can see your face you have to use sound I'm yeah i'm i'm amazed and a little concerned as well it's called like who makes this toothpaste like is it is it like ada a dental association approved (laughs) if Uh, my children start getting cavities i'm coming to japan and getting them no it's good stuff it actually made my teeth much cleaner than a couple of toothpaste that i had tried were because here in japan we can only get our teeth cleaned once a year yeah so anyway that's good that's making me happy Well, that's cool. What about you, Ashley? What's making me happy? I mean, naps. Naps are always what make me happy. (laughs) I'm a big advocate of napping. So can I just say that I thought since your heart surgery, Ashley had heart surgery to fix a congenital defect. And I thought that the nap thing, that like you might kind of move past that because I thought maybe the napping was because your heart wasn't working right. No, I just love naps. But we're still napping. Okay. Yeah. I'll tell you what Dr. Lynn, (laughs) Dr. Lynn is my cardiologist and also my hero. I love him. But anyway, I'll tell you what he told me about napping and also suddenly becoming very athletic. Okay. He said, we are doing open heart surgery, not a lobotomy. (laughs) (laughs) Not going to change your personality. Yeah. Okay. I like You're not going to suddenly like to run. (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, want to be awake all the time. So, okay. yeah. No, I'm still a professional napper. Um, what can I say? And I mean, I guess since this is a podcast about preferring books, I took the recommendation question literally. So I'll just go right on ahead and put out there My Antonia by Willa Cather. <laughs> mm. I read it about once a year. Well, let me put out The Professor's House by Willa Cather. Yeah, we share the same that favorite is your author, favorite but not the same favorite book by the author. No, but it's really funny because you can totally tell like the personality difference by the favorite book we choose. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to tell both of you guys that I tried to read My Antonia when I was like maybe 15 or 16 and I couldn't get through it Um, and I have written off Willa Cather since then so now maybe I have to revisit her. You you weren't ready. Yeah her so I actually really love I think I've only read one of her books that I kind of was like eh but um, I think I love just the vividness of her explanations of things and the vividness. So I know Shannon said 
earlier, and it's probably because we love Willa Cather, but that her, she, you know, saw hints of it um, in Tara's, you know, ability to take something super complex and bring it down into simple terms and explain it, and that's totally true. But what I, um, the similarity mm, I, I exactly saw, what you're gonna say, yep, yeah, was ta- Tara's ability to describe like the mountain and the landscape and mm-hmm. the seasons that she grew up yes. in, and With that was love. what. Yeah. The second time I read the book, I fell in love with Antonia, you know, and the story of her and was really able to grasp her. But I think the first time I loved it just because of how lovingly she described the Nebraska landscape. I mean, it's Nebraska. I never would have thought, you know, that it was just as intoxicating as she makes it sound. But it's like just the way she describes the grass and the sun and the sand. Um She's yeah, in, I was just really taken with, with it. Her home, and she makes you love it. It just seems so wildly beautiful, outlandishly beautiful. And I think Tara Westover did the same thing with Idaho in this yeah. book. Even and though the there seasons so of the woman on the mountain. Yeah. yeah. Like, I can well, see um, the woman on the mountain in my mind. And when I, I read Willa Cather, I can see the Nebraska landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the grasses waving in the winds and the sun setting on them. Listen, Catherine, you really need to read. Why don't you try The Professor's House? It's a lot shorter, and uh, it's something that she wrote later in her career after My Antonia and had sort of, um, uh, I don't know, like refined her style a little bit more. So try that, and if you like it, then try My Antonia again. Okay, I'll give it a try. My Antonia is a an incredible character study. So is the professor's house, but the professor's house has a little more plot. It does. It has like a totally secondary true. plot. Yeah. I mean, for me, I just yeah, the I fell in love with the landscape of of the My Antonio story and then with the characters. I just love them with all their faults and everything. Mm. It just I just adore she them. She does make you love faulty characters. She yeah. does. <laughs> So, Catherine, what are you into lately? Yeah, so so maybe this will be a segue because I'm into long audiobooks lately. So maybe I'll have to try a Willa Cather audiobook. I'm currently listening to Middlemarch by George Eliot. I read that whole book and Shannon gave up on it and didn't finish I it. I did. I could not she do it. And made she made me read it. Stop shaving me. <laughs> <laughs> It is 35 hours long, so it is quite a long book. I still have 10 hours left to go on it. I was like, Ashley, let's read this book together. It's supposed to be like one of the books you're supposed to read, so let's read it together. And halfway through, I was like, I can't do it. I'm sorry. (laughs) It was my my stubbornness, honestly, that made me finish that book and nothing else. That's funny. Well, I do find myself wanting to find like... A BBC miniseries about this so I could just kind of see the whole thing in seven hours versus the 35 hours but it is nice to have something kind of to listen back to I've been driving a lot and doing a lot of things related to our move that we just did and so it's kind of nice just to have like 15 minutes to an hour of the, a consistent story that kind of goes the way through all the way through and it's kind of fun okay well listen you know the entire reason that that book is as grindingly long as it is is because she got paid more because they were published serially in newspapers by the word oh good to know Mm -hmm. now if i could take that baby and edit it down i would read it it's gonna be like 10 pages (laughs) like the thing about willa cather is like every sentence 
every dialogue it's a work of art all of it there's meaning like there's a reason that she put it in the book not like oh man i i really need a new you know shoes for my horses i'm gonna write an extra 200 <laughs> words in this week <laughs> that's, that's funny, funny. <laughs> that is hilarious but uh, yeah. um but Catherine, i'm so glad that you love it and it's good for you that's great <laughs> i'm just enjoying the language and a lot of times i read really fast so the book's over too quickly so i'm enjoying just kind of taking a little bit slower and it, that it's lasting a long time mm. You could also try reading in a foreign language. That really slows you down. <laughs> that would grind it to a complete <laughs> stop since I only know English. Uh, whenever I read in Spanish, it's really frustrating because I have to like go slower than my usual. Um, I just sort of swallow paragraphs whole. It really makes <laughs> me slow down. Yeah, I keep my copy of Middlemarch as like a badge of honor. And every time I move and unpack it, I'm like, I finished this sucker. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> oh. Thank you, Ashley and Shannon, for being on my podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Infinitely Prefer a Book. Check out the show notes for books and recommendations from this episode. You can reach out to me on Instagram at Infinitely Prefer a Book. And let me know if you have any long audiobook recommendations for me. The next full episode of Infinitely Prefer a Book will air on October 17th. We will be discussing Be Frank With Me by Julia Claiborne Johnson. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing.